Today's episode of In the Trenches is brought to you by System 12 Guitar Method. Sign up today at RyanRoxy.com. In the Trenches with Ryan Roxy. Hello, 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 and welcome to another live stream episode of In the Trenches. How do you know it's live stream? Well, you can see we are in our mobile studio, a.k.a. slash hotel room, a.k.a. wherever we can get some sort of Wi-Fi to do our show in the trenches. Folks, how are you doing out there? And if you are not seeing all this beauty, uh, the reason why you're not is because you're listening to us on uh, either Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Thank you very much for doing that. But we'd really like you to go to our YouTube official channel. You know the drill. Go over to Ryan Roxy Official on the YouTube and hit that subscribe button that Vic, our producer right now, is putting up on the screen. And uh, you'll get to listen and to watch and to be part of all these uh, In the Trenches episodes because we do have a live chat. And today is a good one. All right. We've been on the road now for a few weeks with Ace Freely. I've been talking about it. We've been, uh, you know, somehow we've been able to continue the schedule of the podcast and it hasn't been easy. There's been some challenges. We've had to work around the golf schedule, obviously <laughs> work around the actual tour schedule. Sometimes I think the tour schedule revolves around the golf schedule, but um, yeah, but the podcast schedule, we got it. We're live right now. And I have one of our touring members with us today. Um, you know how we like to have living legends uh, in the trenches on the show. Usually they are the legends that are on stage. But tonight, and if you are in Europe, because we have a special nighttime show, uh, tonight we have a legend that's made his living in front of the stage, mixing the sound for some of the world's biggest bands. Currently he's on tour with us in Alice Cooper. He's uh, running in front of house for Ace Fraley. And uh, would you please welcome uh, into the trenches uh, a friend of mine from New York. And, uh, and Alice Cooper, he's uh, running in front of there house. There you go. We have a little bit of uh, echo and stuff like that. That's fine. That's fine. That's, that's him mixing sound. That's what he's doing. He's mixing sound right now. So welcome to Into the Trenches, sound technician extraordinaire legend, Night Bob. Hello, Night Bob. Right now. Can you hear me all right? There you go. Already, right out of the gate, sound tech, sound problems. Yeah, <laughs> I got the mic. All yeah. right, so how about yeah, putting in some? How about putting in some earplugs? Right. Ear, ear yeah. I put the headphones in, and we're still echoing. You know what it is? I think I know oh, exactly what it is. You might have it on. You might have another tab open. You might have another tab open that has uh, the live stream episode. So close that other tab that has the YouTube channel in it because if you have that going then uh then you're going to get that delay all right no this is awesome this is what i love about live stream this is what i love about our podcast you know is everything can happen anything can happen can you hear me now let's get him uh, un unmuted uh, oh it's not you okay i have to unmute him okay so night bob Unmute your microphone on there. Should be a little microphone by your speaker, by your little thing. Yeah. If not, hey, buddy. I'm, I'm Should be a little microphone by your speaker, by your That's little cool. thing. Can you hear me? 
Yep, I can hear you fine. I honestly think you might have another uh, tab on that has YouTube channel on it, and you need to close that channel. Yep, you know? you're fine. I honestly think I might have another uh, tab on that has YouTube channel on it. Close all your other tabs right now. Close all your other tabs, and then we're going to get this podcast started. By golly. That's what we do when we have a special time. Oh, that was brain prying. Don't worry, you got it. See, yeah. no more echo. Yeah, and and, you, and all yeah. you did, you had all you had is the old YouTube on, and you were listening to it on a delay. But you're used to putting lots of delay on the vocals. I'm sure. <laughs> you all good now? Yes, I'm fine. What's happening, Night Bob? Nice to have you on the show. It's great to be here. Uh, I'm sitting in St. Louis, just like you. That's right. In a, in a hotel room. While some of my band crew are um, actually taking showers in the in the shower, there maybe we'll get one. That is that is what they call folks the day room. We get one of those day rooms. We're very lucky with the the Cooper, the Alice Cooper tour that we get our own day rooms for us to just chill and mellow out. But it's it's never a room where you can actually spend the night in. This is when you're doing the when you're doing the band tour and you're living on the tour bus. That room is basically for showers and other business, I guess we yeah, should we'll, say. We'll leave at 4 a.m. to go to uh, wherever we're going next. <laughs> How long have you been doing this, man? How long have you actually been over, doing over this? Over 50 movie? years. 50 years. Over 50. If you count the times that I played in bands in high school and stuff like that, where I actually, in the beginning, I made, I made more money playing in a band than most bands, yeah, I didn't really look like that in high school, but um, uh, <laughs> that's, a, that's a funny picture. That's uh, that's circa that's Aerosmith era. You've maintained sort of the same hairstyle all these years. Yes, yes, and, and the same you know same all black clothing as well. You know for for decades. It's been your trademark. Now, now, did that haircut come from? I I I see I a little bit of the beetle. My hair like this actually. Huh. I could tell you the person who who cut my hair like this. Who was it? It was her name was Susan Rothschild, right? She was an English model. I met her when I was living in Los Angeles, and she is on the cover of the first Flying Burrito Brothers record. Get out of here, Vic! Do you have a picture of that right now? I thought you'd have one up. No, he doesn't. Dan, see, those are the types of things that we need to spring on Vic maybe before we press oh, record. But it's fine. He'll find it. That's good. So, Gilded Palace of Sin is the name of the record. I like it. I like it. Mm -hmm. I, I What I see in your haircut, and honestly, uh, folks, if you're not uh, watching us on the YouTube official channel, then um, you won't be able to see Night Bob's lovely locks. Um, mm -hmm. I, I see a little bit of the Beatles. I see a little bit of Ramones. And uh, a little bit of Patty Smith. Well, here's the deal. Uh, to be honest about it, this it all predates. It's all like from the New York Dolls era in the early '70s, okay. and everybody had really long hair in New York. As, and a little Dennis Dunaway, to be honest with as, you. As the Alice Cooper's band, who was living up in uh, you know uh, up in Connecticut, and they were in Max's Kansas City all the time. If you look at the the backline guys for the New York Dolls when I worked for them, everybody had long straight hair except the drum roadie, uh, who had curly hair, and his name was Max. 
and he was a very interesting character. He uh, passed away about a couple of years ago, but uh, uh, the rest of us are still around. And we get together once a month, actually, to have some laughs at the exp- There's only one New York doll left at this point. Who is the, who is the surviving New York doll? David, David exactly. Johansson. Yeah, exactly. As far as the original dolls, I mean, you know, yeah, those, you can see me behind the bass amp. And that's Pete Jordan, Pete Jordan playing bass instead of Arthur. Well, we just had Steve Conti on uh, a few weeks ago, and I'm sure mm-hmm. you've played and worked with oh, him yeah. oh, over the years in many, Steve. many different times. I know Steve a long time. Mm-hmm. There you go. There's a ITT favorite Steve Conti hanging with Night Bob Sound Technician. It seems as though it all started around New York. Because New York has been your base. You are yes. Mr. New York. Did it start with music? You playing it? And you kind yes. of alluded to it in just a couple minutes ago that you were you were playing guitar. Right. Where did where did that transition go to like, you know what? I'm gonna start uh I'm gonna go in front of the stage and start mixing it. Okay, I'll, I'm gonna do this in a, in a really quick method, right? Here's the deal, right? Both my uh both my parents were in the electronics industry, right? My mom father, took pictures, right? My uh, my mom took pictures, but she was also a line manager at uh, RCA making tubes, right? My father did missile guidance systems, right? So I come from a, a kind of scientific uh, back uh, background, you know, a technical background. And um, but they also they loved music. Neither one of them played an instrument. They uh, insisted that my sister and I uh, take up an instrument for a year. Blah blah blah. I picked guitar, right? So, uh, smart man. Yeah, I thought. Well, my dad wanted me to play saxophone, and I told him, I said, "I don't know, man." He goes, "Those guys don't really look very happy when they play." While the guitar player is always smiley happy, you know. So so I think I'll go with that. Yeah, that's the. Yeah, I don't have that guitar anymore, but I still have the amp. Um, Really. So here's the deal. Back in the in that part of the '60s, everybody had a band, you know. And so it's like I got together, I formed a band with some some kids in the neighborhood, right? And we would play pool parties, right? And when we got into high school, the deal was to play these high school dances, right? So you'd learn a bunch of covers, and uh, we played mostly Catholic high schools, right? So the deal was if you could keep those kids dancing. So they weren't off in the corners making out, right? The the nuns and the priests would have you come back. Time yeah. and time again, you know, because uh, it made their job easier, right? And uh, what they would do is they charge a buck, maybe two bucks to get in. And some of these basketball places that we played, you could put two, three, four hundred kids in there, and they just give the money to the band. So there were times that we would go out, we play all these covers, and uh, uh, I would, you know, we'd make like four hundred dollars a night, uh, Friday and Saturday. That's eight hundred bucks split between five guys that was more money than my father was making working on the missile guidance system so he said and he was working on the lunar modules on the lunar module right so it was like well okay and i said let me go maybe this music thing is not so bad so <laughs> he also helped me build my first pa right i had a kid i went to high school with his name was tom pabianski who was an electronics whiz right uh, between him, me, and my dad, we built a really killer PA. We got some Macintosh amps from where my, my, my you know, this uh, in, it's a secret uh, company called Kirfot that does all this electronic stuff. They were going solid state, and they were dumping all these uh, tube amps out. My old man said, 
get the car, drive behind, tell Willie at the gate, you're coming to pick me up. Go to this dumpster and get as many of these amps as you can and put them in the trunk of your car, right? So I had a really loud PA, right? And I started bringing When we weren't playing, I would rent it out to other bands, right? I rented it out to this band called Black Forest Roads, right? which was way, they were into like original music and stuff like that, right? They weren't making any money, but uh, but they'd still hire the PA. Well, this guy, Harry Popick, that worked for um, for Black Forest Roads, at one point he says to me, he goes, I can get you a job in New York City running a rehearsal studio. And when it's not booked, your band can rehearse there. And I guarantee you'll meet lots of of interesting people. So I took the job, right? My first day on the job, I dealt with Mahavishnu Orchestra. That's the place. Man, you guys are like digging deep into my place. Hey man, we get, when we get into an, uh, to an artist, our producer Rick goes down the rabbit hole. Man, the Rico works the script. I just sit here and grow my mustache and yeah. uh, try to, you and, know, now th- this, in, in this area of where this studio was, this is what, basically Soho became right. it was just an industrial area it was on the corner of Grand and Worcester oh my, now so you can't even afford to look there you can't even afford that, to walk there that, that, those two floors are now like four million dollars uh, condos <laughs> right um, so my first day on the job I had the New York Dolls in one studio and I had Mahavishnu Orchestra in the other one Right, kind of two, you know, two extremes, really. Different types of stuff. And boy, oh boy, it was like, it was instant realization that um, I thought I was a good guitar player till that first day at work. Right, when you're standing next to John McLaughlin and going like, I would never be able to play like this. Right, then like you'd go to the other studio and the Dolls would be playing Personality Crisis, and uh, I'd be going like, I don't think I could generate this kind of energy either. <laughs> You, know, like, so, you probably could play the chords. I, I mean, obviously, Johnny Thunder's a huge influence. Uh, you know, for me, I, I got to jam with him one time at the Loft in New York. Yeah. You remember the Loft? You've probably been there once, yeah. twice, 300 times there. Um, but rumor has it, with a quick New York Dolls uh, anc- antidote, is that they say that right? Antidote? Uh, no, no, I'm not saying right. My Vic, but antidote. Anci- it's not an antidote. antidote. I know that. It's an antidote, I think. I'm going to. Anecdote. Anecdote. There you go. I went to college. To the rescue. Uh, you were there when Johnny Thunders bought his TV yellow uh, Les Paul Jr. Or you were happened to be around there? I had, I had a, a role in it. Here's the deal, right? They played this gig in, in Memphis. And uh, Johnny at that point had a Les Paul TV special with two P90s, right? And um, when Johnny was... Um, was in the spirit of things, right? And when he was, you know, a switch in four controls was a little too much for him. Because you play guitar, you know, if you happen to turn off that neck pickup, right, and then flip the switch to the middle or to the neck position, your guitar goes out. I do it on a nightly basis. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Bonnie did that in front of a screaming crowd. He just spun around, took the guitar, and smashed it. Right back then, that guitar would cost probably about three hundred dollars. Right, so it was a, quite a move. The kids went wild. Right, the uh, they rioted. Uh, the cops arrested David Johansson for inciting a riot, and they took him off to uh, uh, to the pokey in Memphis. And he said, "Would you do the Elvis? Uh, do this to Elvis?" 
and uh, the cops said, we would love to do this to Elvis. But to get back to the story, when we get back to New York, Pete, Pete Jordan, who was the New York Dolls uh, head, you know, stage manager, we'll call him, right? right. He said, we got to do something about this guitar thing, right? And I said, well, here's the deal. Go up and see Mr. Friedman up at We Buy Guitars and get him a Les Paul Jr., TV Jr., right? Same it's call. On 48th Street where all the guitar shops mm -hmm. back in the day. I mean, is it still like that, 48th Street? Does it no, still it's gone. In fact, it, it's been leveled. The buildings are all gone. The whole thing is That's gone. So Last I mean, time I went there, it was just empty lots. But so 48th Street is a place where you get all the guitars. So, so you send them up there. Bought their stuff, yeah. right? And you back, send Johnny up there. I said, "Well, we didn't. You know, we never sent Johnny anywhere, right?" I, guess so not, like, yeah. I said, "Pete, go up there and talk to Mr. Friedman. You know, Larry Friedman. And say, tell him I sent you, and tell him you need a, a TV Junior, right?" So Larry hooked him up and gave. Uh, I think he paid two seventy five. And I said, "Make sure you get a brown case." <laughs> Why a brown case? Because brown case, um, you, those guitars came in cardboard cases, like this alligator cardboard thing, cheap. And the brown case is what they use for the, the Sunburst Les Paul. It's a hard shell case. Okay, so it's a little bit more protective. Because the, when he had his junior, his I mean, when he had the special, it was in a black, like, 70s Les Paul case. I said, okay. make sure you get a brown case. And back then, that brown case would add, like, 25 bucks to the uh, to the cost of the guitar, so that only that had one pickup and a volume and tone control, and everything was swell. I put a set of Grover pegs on it. It's Johnny proof. It, even it was Johnny proof for decades. For decades. And so you had a, you had a hand in that because obviously the reason why I play the TV yellow Les Paul Junior that I do I play, actually play a Billy Armstrong model mm -hmm. double cutaway but it was relicked by our, our friends at uh, Rock and Roll Relics but you, you know I, I wanted that double vibe way. I wanted that vibe Billy yeah. exactly I wanted yeah. that vibe of the uh, New York Dolls and here you mm -hmm. are you know going back to that re rehearsal studio that you're working um, you have the New York Dolls in the studio. How long was it before you started working for them, or was it years later? It, it was a, it was a bit a bit of time because at one point they needed uh, someone who was a, a better engineer uh, than the cat who they were using now, right? Because it was starting, you know, you had to be competitive against all these English. But I learned that on the first trip to England, right? That they, the, when was your first trip to England? Oh, my first trip? I went in the 60s. You know, I was I used to go over and buy Marshall amps over there for like 100 bucks a pop and bring them back over here and sell them for 300 bucks. Right, nice wait a second. Now, when was your first trip over to the UK as a, uh, you know, sound technician? And do you, who was the band that you had? Oh, uh, that was probably as, as a sound engineer, uh, probably Aerosmith in 76. Okay, okay. But before that, you were going back and forth. Just yeah, getting, I mean, you're like, certainly responsible for, for break, breaking Marshall amps into the United States. I wouldn't say that at all. No. The Marshall was doing a very good job breaking their amps over there. I, was, I just found that we used to read Melody Maker. In the back, it would have all these uh, um, you know, music shops who were all on Denmark Street, right? And they'd list their prices in pounds. And we started looking at the... Uh, the conversion factor, we're going like, there's a high watt top for like a hundred bucks. How much does it cost to go over there? And we go like, you could round trip to, to London for like $180 back then. Cause the, the dollar was really strong. 
Right. right. And so we go over, we go down there, buy a bunch of stuff. You know, they, think they used to see us. We go there like once a month and see how much, how many amps we could buy and then check them as excess baggage and then uh, just, you know, take them back here and, and, and sell them to people. It's like but arbitrage. Everybody thought like the English marshal sounded better than the American marshal, which is a fallacy, by the way. Sorry, old guys who paid extra dope to me, but that's the way it was. Okay. I've always wanted to know, dispel that rumor, because that is another thing about Night Bob, is not just doing the sound technician. A lot of people look to you as sort of the equipment guru. Right. And, 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 and that comes you know, from my father. You know, like his thing was, like, do the research. He goes, whatever you're interested in, do the research. Don't be afraid to call the company up or write them a letter or something like that, you know. And, uh, and this is before uh, YouTube, well, so well, you're well, actually well, reading the mo- you're reading the manuals from the oh, back. Well, they didn't have any manuals, which you could always call somebody up and talk to somebody in customer service or something like that. And I started doing that really early on because, like, Marshall, you know, USA was basically out in Long Island. Ampeg was out in it was a 15 minute ride from my house. You could go down there and talk to, to people there and say, why does this do this or, or this or that or the other? Why, why, you know, I mean, you get questions. That's how I first met uh, uh, a lot of amp guys, you know, but, so you, but like amp, you know, I knew a lot about amps. Somehow you and your dad had come up with a super PA because back in those days were the only PAs when you were doing those dances that you were playing at were those, those sure, sure, those sure column PAs, right? And what were, yeah. what's your feeling on those? Yeah, actually better than you would think. You know, I mean, I, I've seen pictures of, of bands playing auditoriums using one of those mixers and maybe two columns aside. Didn't, didn't the Beatles play Shea Stadium or is that uh, folklore with, with Sure PA? I don't think they used Sure PA, but I know the last tour they did, uh, sound was provided by Hanley Sound out of uh, Boston area. All right. All right. So getting back to New York and staying in this sort of New York groove, if you will, um, you're currently on the road with Ace Frehley. That's um, right. Who, who plays, you know, or played and, and obviously legacy of uh, mm-hmm. a certain New York band uh, that's it's quite big. Were, were you guys in the same circle back in those days as well? Or how did it come that you're uh, mixing ace? Okay. Um, I guess it would have to be, I had uh, that band with the makeup he's always talking about. Yeah. <laughs> We could say the K word, can't we? There they are. Well, I mean, here's the deal. Here, here's the, here's the deal. There, um, I had run into Gene and Paul before there was Kiss, right? When they had their Wicked Lester band and all that, right? Because the scene was very small, right? Mm-hmm. If you went to Max's, you'd run into people, or somebody would, you know, you'd be at some show at the. Uh, at the Academy of Music or something like that. Oh, there's my friend Paul. He's from Queens. He's got a band, blah, blah, blah. You know, it's like, so it was like a really small kind of thing. So uh, I know people who auditioned. It's like when Bob Kulik auditioned for Kiss, right? And Binky Phillips auditioned for Kiss, right? When they had a loft on 14th Street. So, but what happens is that I was working a show for the Stooges on New Year's Eve in 1973 at the Academy of Music, right? The the bill was Blue Oyster Cult, uh, the Stooges, 
uh, a hot local band called um, uh, Teenage Lust, right? Okay. And then tacked on at the last minute was uh, this band Kiss, right? Were they Wicked Lester at that point, or did they? Well, they were Kiss. They were Kiss, and I had actually seen them play out in in uh, Queens at Coventry before, because the Dolls used to play Coventry, and like one of the Dolls uh, bands said, "Oh, you guys should see this band Kiss. They're really funny." I don't think they'd like that very much. But I said they were funny. But we went lower. These guys came and they played their little twenty-minute set. Gene set his hair on fire, right? And we were kind of like, "Wow, look at this! It's like monster rock, whatever." And then two months later, they were support band on the New York Dolls tour in the Midwest. I just saw that uh, Vic, our producer, put up the uh, flyer for that. That's right, Flint, Michigan. And, uh, and pretty soon, the roles flipped on that, and they. Uh, Obviously, were you hanging out with Ace back in those days? He's, he's, uh, he's pretty, a, a I equate of, him with New York just as much as I equate you with New York. Okay, I'm going to tell you, here's a, here's a quick story up about that tour, right? We were in Cleveland. We were all staying at this Holiday Inn, right? And there was a, a, a wild party going on, right? And these these uh, girls said to uh, uh, to Arthur, the bass player in the Dallas, they go, Arthur, Arthur King. Arthur Kane, he goes, they go like, you're not crazy. Deep Purple was crazier than you, right? And he went, oh, Deep Purple is crazy. And so he goes out in the hole and gets this fire extinguisher. And we're all like, oh, no. What he does is he opens the window and throws the fire extinguisher out the window. We're on like the 10th floor, right? And, of course, we went and looked, right? And we saw this fire extinguisher go right down and through the roof of the restaurant, which was closed because it's just like, you know, 1 a.m. or something like that. Right, right. We go, this is going to be trouble. Right. So we went to the floor Kiss was on and we took their fire extinguisher and we put it on our floor. Right. <laughs> right so the next day, right, um, we're checking out. We're going, let's get out of here. Right. And uh, I saw their tour manager uh, like uh, negotiating with the front desk. Like just because our, our fire extinguisher was missing doesn't mean that we did that. You know, but we're going like, let's get out of here. With some guilt by association on that because well, well, they had the reputation as well. Yeah. Thing called shifting the blame. Yeah, you know passing I mean? the buck. I love it. So, so, I, and if if I remember Arthur, very quick contact that I had with him throughout the years. He's very quiet, understated guy. Right. But you know, so if he was throwing out extinguishers out windows mm -hmm. and then passing it on to Kiss. I wonder yeah. what well, so the road guys decided we wanted to blame Chris. Uh, so Artie was more, you know, <laughs> in, into entertaining the young ladies. Oh, yeah, watch this. And we're like, oh. Well, you know, that's how you entertain people in Cleveland, Ohio. This is the way it was back. You know, this is back. This is the reality of touring in the early 70s. You know, that it was like, you know, there was no Internet. There's no cable TV, right? There's no cell phones, right? You've got one or two magazines that feed you what's happening. I'm saying, yeah. right? There's no TV shows. So there's no paper trail. Nobody telling you this is what's happening here and blah, blah, blah. And like, if you, you know, you heard like what? Rolling Stone, Cream Magazine, and Circus, 
something like that. Right? And you waited for those stories. You waited and, for that folklore. And you lived for it. You know, it's, and of course, those, you know, a magazine is always like three months after an event happens. So by the time it gets to, to people out in the hinterlands, you know, it's, it's kind of like, then it gets telephoned around. And next thing you know, you know, it's, it's, it's like these things become, you know, blown out of proportion. Like they're all saying like, you know, how messed up the New York dolls were on drugs and stuff. And that's not particularly true because in order to be, you know, uh, it was hard to get drugs. You know what I mean? It costs money to get drugs, right? And if you're not, they, they, you know, they were on a tight leash from the management. They got like some living expenses, right? And they were able to, this is so funny, they could sign $15 a day to their hotel room. So you can't buy drugs and sign it to your hotel room. Nowadays you can, but uh, back then you couldn't, right? So you they would depend. I didn't know that. <laughs> Do they have $15 in drug credit going on? Yeah. If it is. Well, you can't, you know, but now, now you could probably, you know, you know, sell a, uh, a delivery service or whatever and have, have it come to your hotel. There's an app for that. Yeah, you there's know, probably an app for it. it. <laughs> but, you I know, it. I mean, if you really look at, at what, what was going on culturally in like 74, 75, right? It was all about English bands, right? And um, American bands were more of, of a curiosity, you know, like they were like the home team. Think about it. It was all like Broad Stewart in the Faces, the Who, the Stones, you know? I mean, David Bowie, you know? It was like, that's where your ticket money went. I mean, if you really think about it, right, it wasn't until like 76, 76, like the American bands take over. You have the rise of Kiss, the rise of Aerosmith, the rise of Boston, and in a way, the rise of Peter Frampton, who was basically an American band at that point, selling millions of records, right? Well, I mean, all the stuff he made was from, you know, recorded in the Bay Area, and right. that's where I grew right. up, and right. Frampton Comes Alive, one of my Biggest influence of records. All, all, it's like, all of a sudden, it's like the hometown team. You know, it's like, we all need those limeys. We got our own bands, you know, and, and those bands were willing to go out and work. I get to, I say that to both Kiss and Aerosmith. They went out and did the work. They played all, they played all the time. And well, you're right there working with them as well. As you not in that period. That's embarrassing right there. <laughs> what period was that? <laughs> Oh, that's early. That's got to be like, I don't know, first album or something. Look at the clothes. Yeah. We, I didn't think much of them, Aerosmith, really. David sent me to see them play in a place called Banana Fish Garden in Brooklyn, and I was not impressed. The only thing that impressed me was Brad Whitford because he looked like he was kind of dressed like Mick Taylor right. and played like Mick Taylor, right? I was like, that guy's really good. I don't know about that creepy singer, though. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. That's well, so had, had you garnished this reputation um, already as a sound guy? Was it the dolls that did it? Or what do you think was the band okay. that sort of got you this reputation? Here's and the deal. Okay. okay, this is the actual story, right? I did these shows with the Stooges at, um, at Max's Kansas City. For those of the anybody keeping score at home, if you if you need to keep score at home, it's Iggy Pop and the Stooges, right. and 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 this was like the original band. This, this is all the yeah, great. Yeah, that's actually from the show I did. Uh, that's at a Max's Kansas City show, and uh, uh, the funny part is they they hired a lot of gear, 
right? And nobody, I was still working at the rehearsal place. Nobody wanted to do it, mainly because Max's, the way you played was on the second floor. And no one wanted to haul all this gear up this long flight of stairs, right? So uh, I said I'd do it because I liked the band. I figured it'd be kind of fun to hang out with the band. I, I At that point, I knew I could hire some muscle to bring the shit upstairs, right? right. And uh, and get to see the band up close. Well, I got to see them way too up close. <laughs> and um, but those were revolutionary shows for me. I mean, as far as a band having uh, firepower, like emotional and musical firepower, like a band on the like a tail spinning band on the way down, putting every ounce of their being into these shows, right in New York City. So. Um, when I, so we did these shows. There was, you know, uh, a couple of interesting incidents. You can read about it and please kill me or whatever. And uh, that's what that's one of the two of your books, right? No, no. That's see see that on his chest that um, that little mark. black mark. Yeah, yeah. Well, he went to walk on the table on some tables, and the table slipped, and he fell on top of uh, some glasses, and he was bleeding like crazy, man. It was like it was like being in Saving Private Ryan. I'd never seen anything like it. You know, this guy's bleeding. I said, "You're going to stop, right?" He goes, "No, I'm a professional. I will finish my show." <laughs> and our mutual pal Alice Cooper um, convinced him to go get stitched up because he just kept saying, "Put a piece of tape on it." I'm like, "Tape's not sticking to that. You're bleeding a lot." You know. So, so Alice was there that night as Alice well. Was there. Mm-hmm. And, and he I guess Andy Warhol was there as well. Mm-hmm. It was ever, you know, it was quite a night, I must say. What happens is, is that a, uh, like that's in uh, August of '73. In October of '73, they called me up and they said, "We're doing a show in uh, the Michigan Palace, and we need your help." Yeah. So. We're that's gonna a big, and that's a big gig at that point for you. Yeah, right? that's, that's a three thousand seat hometown gig, two nights, right? And uh, they say uh, the tour manager says, "We need your help. These gigs are really important. Uh, there's a plane ticket in your name." And so I flew up to Detroit. I did these shows, right? When I came back from these shows, these shows were intense. That became that Metallica. One side of the uh, of the two CD, the two uh, record set is. The shows that one of the shows I did, right? And um, when I came back, everybody treated me differently because they a, ba- a professional band had flown me to another city to right. do the show, right? So they said, "Oh, this guy must know what he's doing," you know. Yes. So. It wasn't then, just because they always say, oh, we'll just get to use the house guy. You were right. flown in. I was flown in. Yeah. Yeah. So that and, so maybe uh, that was the birth of the sort of rock star sound. Well, technicians. Wait, let's get uh, don't, not really. Here's the part that, that really seals the deal. Right. That was like all of a sudden I wasn't the rehearsal guy anymore. Right. Who played guitar. I was now the guy who knew everything, who also ran the rehearsal studio and played guitar. Right. That, I did. I mixed that show. That's the that's the uh, later gig with Iggy. I that, that's the Ron Ashton um, a tribute in Ann Arbor, and that's Dennis Tech playing guitar. That's great. Well, we go a little bit orchestra chronological timeline here with the photos. That's right. Well, it's interesting because there's a, if you notice there's a there's like a thirteen piece orchestra behind the band. Yeah, exactly. That wasn't that, that they couldn't fit that into Mexico, Kansas City. I don't. Think. No, not at all. And that, that was because Ron always thought that some of the music they made would make great film music, so they orchestrated some of it, and it's really good. Go find the DVD. 
the uh, you know the Ron Nash interview. It's got some interesting stuff on it. But the thing that see, I came back. The dolls said to me, they go, "Oh, you're the you're the man. We want you to come and do Bebas in London, right? Go get a passport." So I already have a passport. They were impressed. I already had a passport, right? Yeah. You figure you can probably grab a couple Marshall lamps on the way. That's what I was thinking. I said, I know where the high watts are, you know. And um, but what happened was there was some kind of, you know, it's like I don't know. Some someone in management stepped in and said, "Oh, we got this guy who works for the Stones or something like that. He'll mix them, right?" It was a, it was a gig at a, uh, at a department store, Bebas, hip, hip and trendy, and all that kind of jazz, right? And uh, so I didn't go. Right. So I was like uh, kind of bummed. Right. And then some of my English pals, um, you know, because a lot of English bands rehearsed at, at that studio. The studio was called Baggies. Right. And uh, that was the one that, that was down in New York. And so. Right. That was down in, in what is now Soho. Right. They came in and they called up and they said, hey, what are you doing? I go like, I was going to go to visit you guys in England, but it didn't happen. They go, well, we're here now. And we're working for Emerson Lake and Palmer and we could use a guy like you on this tour. Right. So I went out. And um, did uh, four months of uh, of an arena tour in quadraphonic with Emerson Lake and Palmer. Let me let now see. This is the craziest thing because quadraphonic is one of this quadraphonic sound. You hear about it and you see it on on Who records. You know, you. Uh, I remember quadraphonic sound. That means sound coming from all ends of could, left, yeah. right, back, right. And, you know, yeah. so. Was that true? Infantry. Did it actually happen? Yeah, it did. But there were, you know, speakers in in four corners of an arena. And could you get something only coming from the back, right? Oh, yeah. Something okay. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Why do you think they switched that? Why do you think they stopped doing that and, and only made it sort of a stereoscape? Well, so. the thing was, it was incredibly complicated, and the technology wasn't really up to to doing it. It was good for a special effect, right? You know. Uh, Emerson Lake and Palmer had like a, uh, we, we, you know, you're trying to present music to people, right? If you start doing things like putting like kick and snare behind them, right? And my bands are still playing, you know, it doesn't really work. I mean, like panning a synthesizer around, around the room is really exciting the first and second time you do it. And then it just gets to be annoying, you know? <laughs> it, it does, you know? I mean, yeah, like, I get, I get they, you, I get you. Go, Hand the snare drum, and it was like, "What?" You know, it's like, "Whatever." You know, we, we didn't like old Beatles records, but uh, yeah. and everything to the left <laughs> with the band in the back. Like, okay. So, so the thing that impresses me, Night Bob, is because Maybe I, I know you. Explain. What'd you say? What is quadraphonic I'm sound? Seeing the thing on the bottom, quadraphonic sound. Yeah, four speakers. Four speakers. Yeah. Four speakers, one in each corner of the room: front right, front left, rear right, rear left. Sort of like a little bit like what you would have in your surround sound system right. these right. days when yeah. you, you know. Now they got it all figured out. And people <laughs> still don't do it in life. Well, they don't do it live. Well, yeah. without getting too technical, there, there's this immersive sound thing that's going on now that works for some kind of acts, right? But um, loud rock, not really. What, what kind of acts are doing immersive sound? Oh, I forget. Well, Bon Iver. Okay. You know, and it works really good for electronica bands. You know what I mean? Where you got bloops and bleeps coming from all different directions and stuff like that. You know? Yeah. I don't even know if that's a trend anymore. It was like a big deal at one point. And now nobody talks about it. Huh. Yeah. 
Well, the yeah. thing that impresses me about you tonight, Bob, is that I know you primarily. Uh, I know you met you in New York City. I, I, you know, you've mixed sound for me over at one of our mutual friend Don Hills, uh, mm -hmm. amazing club, amazing guy, Cat Club back in the day, rock mm -hmm. and roll, just in the trenches. But yeah. here you are. You guys are quick on the visuals. I'm a club. nice picture of Don Hills, man. Yeah. It's still there, but mm -hmm. being unrented, apparently empty. What yeah, you said before. But mm -hmm. the thing is, you actually cut your teeth though on a lot of these really ultra uh, sonically uh, hip bands like ELP and even Steely Dan as well, right? right? Mm -hmm. how, did, how did did the ELP gig go to Steely Dan and how did that work out? Well, it, it, like ELP is interesting uh, because it was they were like the last of the really gigantic English bands before the Americans started taking over. You know what I mean? I mean? They were still popular amongst people, but the, you know, the focus changed to these American bands like Kiss, Aerosmith, Ted Nugent, Boston, you know, Peter Frampton, REO Speedwagon, you know what I mean? Is so Alice Cooper. Exactly. You know, and, uh, and these, you know, so also there was an audience change, you know, where the, that, all of a sudden, the people, you know, that uh, were supporting all the English bands in the end of the 60s into the 70s, they either moved away or stopped going to shows. You know how it is when you're in high school. It's like my brother listens to that. Like nowadays, it's like, oh, that's grandpa music, you know, or whatever, you know. And uh, Yeah, but kids it like it. As you can see from the shows, you see it. You see this generational thing happening, whether it's Ace Freely fans and Kiss right. fans that are coming out to the shows or it's Alice Cooper fans. It, it has switched a little bit to more like kids don't think their parents' music sucks as much anymore, right? Or do they? That's on the Alice Cooper. That picture there, that's Nick Perry with the Duke, uh, Duke shirt on. Uh, he was in the band Silvertide, who uh, you – no, you weren't – I don't think you were there for that. That was 2003 on Alice Cooper. Okay. Were you there? Two thousand depends on what. Uh, yes, I was. I okay. actually, you know what? We, uh -huh. They they opened up. Okay, yeah. here's the here's the story about Silvertide. That yeah. I because I was reading up on you and you, you were listening to all these bands. Someone yeah. had asked you what your favorite uh, live performances was because you've seen a lot of them. And you were mentioning, you know, Iggy Pop was up there. Uh, um, there's some Aerosmith in there. There was some New York Dolls. But then you said Silvertide in London was one of your most sonically, uh, like, pleasing gigs. And what was that? Why was that? Here, here's the deal, right? With that, those kids, right? They were kids. They, they, they were. They had a little band, and they were playing, playing in a club. And all next thing you know, they played seven shows, and there were seven labels build uh, bidding for them. All over for them, yeah, yeah. Everybody thought they were the next Aerosmith kind of thing. This is like in two thousand two, right? But the thing was. They could. They were from North Philly. They were like a breakout. They were. They had no idea about the music business whatsoever. So they would go and they would throw themselves into making music like with no fear, 
right? They, they rented a cabin in the woods and they spent like two months out there writing songs without any kind of interference from anybody, right? And they come up with these songs when it came to live performance. All, you know, like I was, I, I used to prod them too, you know, going like, listen, you know, this is an opportunity and you have to seize these opportunities, you know, I mean, like you've got to go out and fight, you know, to get an audience to pay attention to you. You know, so you got to grab them by the throat and, and really, uh, so they, by the time they hit, uh, that show that I was talking about in London, they had yeah. played easily 150 shows. We had John, you know who Johnny Pudell is? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Johnny Pudell was their booking agent, right? Booking agent, he, yeah. he was Alice Cooper's booking agent for many years too. That's true. Right. Yeah. And, um, that's how we got on Alice Cooper's tour. And, um, and how we got on Van Halen too, uh, but they worked really hard, you know. And they see, and they were they were smart too. They'd see how it works, you know. They'd watch the a Cooper show, and they would incorporate incorporate elements of that, you know. And especially because they were kind of pure, right? They had no idea. All they knew was like they would say, "Well, we read on the internet," and I was like, "Nothing on the internet is true," right? <laughs> Don't Except in the trenches. And yeah. all the stories yeah. that, that yeah. Bob is, is saying today are true. Uh, well, I'm just giving you some uh, a little highlights there. But they, they could let it, they could let it rip and they still let it rip. You know, I mean he uh Nick is out fronting his own band now. He has a band called Nick Perry and the Underground Thieves. Walt the singer um has moved more into Americana, mm -hmm. which is where he really was. They tried to make him into something that he wasn't. That's such an idiot. I'm, I'm that? I'm, no, I'm just I'm seeing the, the the script that Federica so eloquently laid out for me and and gave me a lot of things to go on. And I'm saying, yeah, Silver Tide. Let me go check out this band. And I'm like, wait a second, they did open up for us. I didn't realize it until you. I didn't remember it until you said it. And it was 2003. So we have toured before. Okay. Yeah. So, um, Alice Cooper. It's like I did uh, uh, Jesse Camp opening for alice cooper we've and toured many times then yes we were there because I, I had pictures i was there at the uh, great america fiasco <laughs> right. what, a yeah. great, what a great night that was what really happened there what now uh, did just the camp throw some water on something no, like it, it no, was this wait this is think about this for a second okay this patron said that he spit on them right and decides to sue Jesse Camp, his label, Hollywood Records, Alice Cooper for having them on the show, yeah. right? The Great Adventure Amusement Park for booking said show, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, it was a big thing, you know, and it was like, uh, I was like, really? And all he was doing was singing. Because yeah. you know, if anybody knows that that Jesse Camp does generate a lot of saliva when he sings, that is and, absolutely true. I'm so glad you said that. You know, because he, he, you know, he's listen. We, I could do an entire podcast on Jesse Camp. You know what? Jesse's yeah. going to come on the podcast. We've we've talked. We've been talking back and forth. We just got to figure out the right date. I just figured it would be nice to have you on. We're on the same. Uh, we're on the same tour. We're we're in the same hotel room. Yeah, know. You know, so it's good to have us on the same plane. Um, let's take a quick break right now, uh, Night Bob. If you're cool with it, um, we're going to hear from one of our sponsors. They're our microphone company that is Buyer Dynamic, and um, microphone. 
They're great microphones. There it is. Night Night Bob approved. Biodynamic, our sponsor. We'll be back, folks, with a little bit more of In the Trenches coming up right now. Hey. Hello, Ryan Roxy here, host of the In the Trenches podcast, and I also play guitar for Alice Cooper. I just wanted to take a second to talk about what mic you're hearing me speak through and what headphones I choose to listen to all my audio with. My go-to podcast and live performance mic is this TG V7 Dynamic Vocal Mic. And when I'm recording acoustic stuff, I'll always mic it up with the Biodynamic M160 Double Ribbon Mic. I listen to everything with the DT1770 Pro headphones unless I'm out and about. That's when the Aventa Wireless headphones really make listening to music, podcasts, or any other audio app that's on my phone ultra high fidelity and latency free. Check out their official site or the links below in the description of this video to find out more about what makes Biodynamic a musician's choice in pro audio mics and headphones. Now, let's get back into the trenches for some more rock and roll. Enjoy the show. Enjoy the ride. Who is that clean-shaven young man hawking biodynamic? I don't know. You make a very good spokesperson. <laughs> well, you know what? More and more coming. Hey, by the way, hmm. check it out. Oh, yeah, yeah. You got them in England, right? Those, these are these are click eyewear. There's, they're one of our newest sponsors as well. Oh, really? So it's not, not going to be a call commercial, but it's all about, you know. I had a tour manager uh, from the U.K., on Steely Dan, who had those? And this I love was it. Seven years ago. What was it like working with Steely Dan? I'm just, I'm, I'm very yeah, curious. Let me tell you. Let me tell you something, right? It, it's like I should probably be really careful how I say this, but um, don't be careful. It's in the no. Trenches. Listen, like like a lot of a lot of musicians are very much savant, right? They can do one thing and do it really well, right? And usually. It's it, they take up an instrument because they have communication issues with other human beings, right? No, yeah, uh, that's fair. Yeah, it, it's it's kind of you know the reason. Now these guys, on the other hand, are like fucking brainiacs, right? Every day with them was like they're they were so smart, right, and so dark, right? Here's the deal, right? I met them at that same studio. In 1973, they came from from California to rehearse a couple of days. That same and, rehearsal studio. That so that seems to be the epicenter of where yeah, a lot of your, your stuff went down. Right. Yeah. And they were coming to do uh, a thing called ABC TV Live in Concert, where they would uh, show a live concert that was at Banana Fish Garden in in uh, Brooklyn, and then broadcast it on WABC radio in stereo in stereo not, quadru- not quadrophonic <laughs> so i met i met them there and actually worked that show right and then like a billion years later um a friend of mine who was working for steely dance says listen i'm going out and doing brian setcher and becker wants uh needs an engineer to record some rehearsals uh He's demoing up to do a solo record. He goes, you should do it, right? So he sends, he, I go to SIR in New York. And as soon as I walked into Becker, uh, in the room, Becker says to me, he goes, I remember you. You were in that studio that is what is now Soho, right? And I was wow. like, okay, right? So I was like, yeah, he's real, I'm telling you, these guys were fucking sharp, right? And very dark and weird, you know? I mean, read the lyrics. And one of the first things when I started working for him, first of all, I go, I'd love to mix this band. And Becker says to me, he goes, you don't want to do that. I go, what do you mean? He goes, like, engineers have a very short lifespan in this band. 
He goes, and in our discussions here, says like you and me and Donald, we're all like within a couple of years of each other age wise. And we kind of all went to the same shows, you know, I mean, like Donald grew up in Passaic, New Jersey. I grew up in Forest Hills. You, you know, grew up in Kearney and spent a lot of time in Greenwich Village. He goes, I have a better job for you. Right. So <laughs> I became what was called their tour manager, right? A road manager for the two of them. Right. And basically it was, uh, if you really, if you step back and look at it, I was probably the highest paid entertainment director and baggage consultant on the planet Earth. Right. Um, <laughs> flew around in a private jet. You know, they, they said like, we don't trust front of house guys, but we trust you. So you go out there and you keep an eye on them and you come back and tell us what you think. Cause we, we value your opinion. And I'm like, that's pretty good. And he goes, and just so you know, just so you know, there's two other people listening out there too. So if your story doesn't match up with theirs, we know there's an issue. Right. So I'm like, okay. Right. So this went on for like the first couple of weeks. Then they said, you know what? We really trust you. We've given you complete power to reach over and change anything you want while the show is going on. Oh, that annoyed some engineers, let me tell you. You know, I mean, it's like, yeah, you know, right. Plus, uh, you know, uh, which was kind of, I, I didn't do it that much. And like, you know, unless there was a really a severe problem, because I knew with them that with them, the placement of the kick drum is like really important because too many engineers, they want to show up their great kick drum sound. Right. If you listen to Steely Dan records, the kick drum is not very prominent. It's like a jazz record. You know, it's like a thump right. in the background. Right. And that would and, and it's like too many engineers would immediately go into. They'd love to show their wonderful drum sound. And they weren't into that at all. You know, uh, uh, without risk of trying to get uh, things echoey and stuff like that, um, I want to find out what do you find more challenging to mix a band that can't play their instruments and you're trying to make the best mix possible or a band like steely dan or elp that are such geniuses at their instruments that are so high demanding with their sort of uh you know this, sonic this, demands okay so hard. Uh, the the band that, that can't play okay. right because um, you worked with both that's a, that's the thing to be honest i said I've, I've worked with some bands that seem primitive but are not, you know, I mean, it, it, it's Give me like, an example you, of, of, like, I, I, well, maybe, maybe I, I would say maybe the students are like that. They're probably no definitely like that. You try I and play drums, play drums like, like Scott Ashton did on, on the second record on the Funhouse record. It's very unique drumming, you know, and, and very much like, uh, you know, self-taught, you know, uh, kind of stuff. And, uh, in a way, kind of pure, you know, out, you know, there's no real, there's some outside influences, but not like he was listening to cream or something like that. Right. right. Here's the deal, right. With, the, with a band like Steely Dan, the music is composed to fit together. Right. And they, and more untrained, you know, so all the parts are easy. I'm telling you, you could go there and you could bring up all the faders to zero and you'd be pretty close. You know what I mean? Because the music is designed to work, to have space, right? That every instrument has space, right? Well, meanwhile, like in, in, in say, a band like, like the Ramones, it's all about emotion and attitude and firepower, you know? Uh, and uh, 
and, and the same case though that that like if you tried to play uh, like Tommy from the Ramones on the first couple of records, very unusual style of drumming that most that a lot of normal drummers could not play. Uh, yeah, I, I, I always say like, like a guy like Steven Adler. There's no one right. else that could play the drums on Appetite for Destruction like the way I Steven Adler did. I agree 100%. You know, and it's like when they said that, when they threw him out, I go, that's the end of that band as, uh, as a, you know. Very unique, very unique very drums unique, and, and special unique. in rock and roll history, obviously. Well, let me ask you this. What does a crowd play in the part of a good show or a bad show when you're out in the, in the front of house, mixing a band, does, well, can it, can it, can a crowd's energy or a crowd's vibe influence the entire mix? No, 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 it is what it is. Oh, let me tell you something. I've mixed some really bad sounding shows in my life, right? For a variety of reasons, right? And for a variety not, of reasons. For a variety of reasons, right? And, uh, the worst feeling in the world is when you're sitting there and you're saying to yourself, oh, I was so horrible. You know, I worked really hard and I could never get it together. And there's a stream of people going by going like, sounded great. Yes. You know, and you're going like, you knew, you knew. We're not listening. You know? <laughs> yeah. That's Boston. That's the Aerosmith uh, 1976 pre, uh, pre-production pre rehearsals for the Rocks tour. How can you tell? Is it, can you tell because of the shirt you're wearing or can you tell because of the console? I, I recognize uh, by the consoles, actually. They're both British consoles. One, The one on my side is a uh, Mavis and the one in front of me is a Gelp. And back at that time, here's funny because you, you were talking about your headphones. Uh, when I got irritated, I would smash headphones in 1976. So you needed a biodynamic endorsement? Well, I'm sure I smashed at least 20 of them. You know. <laughs> I, I would get mad and I just smashed them, you know, and because um, I was out of control, you know. Well, let me ask you this, yeah. you know, because our form has obviously changed with live, with live sound, like, right crazily it's changed you know from the the days of your you and your dad making that first pa to now what is uh what you're mixing ace fraley off of uh these days um what did you have to change to to transition from the old analog boards of the 70s to today's digital systems was it nothing nothing because here's the deal right it's all about balance right Balancing the instruments relative to each other. That's what makes a great mix to me, right? You know, that you really have to, you know, back in England, they used to, didn't, they, they, they used to call them balance engineers, right? Rather than mixers, right? And it's like getting the, the instruments in the proper space and stuff. That's what it all takes, right? And that's a first front of house, wasn't it? Was it Fleetwood Mac or someone that went went, went from because the, usually the sound engineer yeah, used to be on the side. Dawson, who was mixing Fleetwood Mac back in the day as being um you know the first guy to move the console out front to the front of the house. So and, it used to be used to be called sound engineer, and you'd mix from like back where the drummer was, or some maybe on the side of the stage. Side of the stage, you know. I mean, people didn't care that much, really. You know, uh, you know, it's like when I saw bands in the late '60s, they used whatever 
the PA in the house was. It wasn't until later on that bands began to care about what they sounded like. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, but the, the trans, you know, transition from analog to digital, it take, you know, you had to wait for the, the, the biggest problem was it took time for the technology to catch up, you know, because everybody was in a rush, you know, I mean, like you can uh, listen to some of those first digital recordings, right? And uh, they don't sound so good. And when you listen to them, you know, but it was digital, no scratches, no pops, you know, <laughs> you can't, you know, it'll always sound this way. But that that wasn't as hard, really was. And PAs got better and better. Every year, the PA was better than the year before because there was, you know, people wanted to to make it better. But overall, you, you're saying the technique hasn't changed, but it has to have changed a little bit as far as uh in the same sense that I play out of amps and now you play out of more, you know, digital sounding stuff when we're recording, there is a transition. No, do you, do you still feel the sound as much or do you? Oh yeah, I think so. I think that it comes down to the, you know, it's like, that's just a mess, method of delivery really. When you really get down to it, if the band has it, you know what I mean? And can, can play, you know, with enough uh, energy and emotion to, to, you know, to convey that to an audience. The PA is just a transfer method, that's all. You can't make a band more, there's not, you know, like that famous cartoon with the suck button, you know? Yes. In his yes. last day on the job, he's cranking up the suck button on the band. <laughs> Bands do a really good job of cranking up their own suck button, you know? Uh, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. The, it's really, it's, it's the power of a good performance. You know, do you have a favorite? Do you have a favorite band that you've ever mixed, or do do they all sort of kind of have no, something I mean, special I to them? Back, uh, I look back, and there were shows that I did that that you know when you you know it's really difficult. We said, "What are your ten favorite shows you ever mixed?" And you know, like sometimes the first things come to mind were it was like like REM. I mixed REM on Life's Rich Pageant, right? And they were uh, I had just spent I left the business for a couple of years, right? I got tired of it. After five years of it, I just said, this blows, I'm tired of it. I'm gonna do, I'm gonna go play guitar, I'm gonna sell some guitars, do some other stuff, right? And um, when I came back, I came back because like, um, Aerosmith asked me to come back in 1983. So I came back and I started mixing shows and, and I went from like 83, 84, 85. 80. Like sort of the done with mirrors era was, or right around there? Back in the saddle into done with mirrors. Right? It was all hard rock, right? And I went when Aerosmith flamed out in 86, I went to Ted Nugent, which is, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah cat scratch fever, woohoo, you know, and, uh, and you know, very professional great shows he could play his ass off man, when he wanted to right and then i went to rem and rem like kind of cleaned the slate for me because it was so different right you know i mean like they uh they were uh, the songs were very different the audience was different right the way they uh they cleansed your palate they were they were the was, sh- yeah <laughs> uh, you could say that it was it, it i more like it was more of an eye-opening thing that there was a shift going on in the audience right all of a sudden this band was becoming extremely popular right with a mumbling singer right it's, it's like because i remember saying to michael stipe uh, once i go hey in this song are you saying we could gather throw up beer 
And you turned to me and you said, no, but from now on, that's what I'll be mumbling, right? And, uh, and there were really good people, right? And it was very different from what was going on. It changed, changed my perspective on things, right? And um, on how, you know, I mean, it was very, you know, what I would have thought would be a, like a, a small market was becoming, it was like, we were playing some big ass shows. Yeah, it was a whole, it was a whole nother new genre of music that was rising right. up at that point. Wow! Well, they, they always they sounded great. Their whole thing was that they're uh, they would spend time working on a set list, and they played. They'd start the first song, then you could throw the set list away. They went whatever you know the uh, their desire carried them. You know, and, did the audience have any influence on it as, as well? I mean, the audience must have had some sort of. Well, not really, because one night, you know, there was a, one night they played all covers and the audience was not happy. Right? They, they think to, they are the replacements? They wanted <laughs> to hear Radio Free Europe. It was around the same time as the replacements. Yeah, well, that's what I loved about the replacements. The replacements yeah, would awesome. do, they were kind of like the Norm McDonald of rock bands. They would do whatever you'd think they would do. They would probably do the opposite. If it annoyed you, they'd even do it more. <laughs> so my first day with REM, they, they, they would encore with Toys in the Attic, right? And I was like, Wow, this is really irritating. Yeah. REM would oh, yeah. record Toys yeah. in the Attic, Aerosmith. Yeah, we play wow. Toys in the Attic, right? right. And they're going, hey, we're playing that, a song from that band you've just finished working with. And I said, yeah, and you're playing it wrong, right? <laughs> and they're like, what do you mean? And it was like... Toys <laughs> in the Attic, you're mumbling. Yeah, it was, <laughs> listen, I can't, I can't, you know. And look, you know, they, when they in their, you know... Props to them. At one point, they said, "You know what? We said everything we we're, we're going to say. Well, that's it. Bang, we're done as a band." You know, yeah. and they yeah. haven't they haven't done that big reunion tour or anything like that. I don't they? think they ever would either. They're not that kind of people. It was a different motivation. You know. Wow! Shout out respect to REM and ABBA. Maybe it's just yeah. those, those, those lettered band names. That's what it is. Um, Night Bob, I need to uh, get some some animation in here. And obviously, because we usually have, I'm, I've been a little out of practice, folks. We didn't do our back to get forward animation. And guess what? This whole show has been a little bit back to get forward. But now we have a segment that you're going to love this animation, Night Bob. It's a, it's a section we like to call the one that got away. So, Vic, maybe we can run it and then I'll explain what it is tonight. Okay, Bob, after this. And that would be the bassist of REM that's in that uh, little right there. But um, the one that got away is about, uh, and it's cool that we're having you on as a sound technician, plus being a guitar player, that there is a thread in that. And hey, look, we got matching glasses on, but do yours do that? Huh? Yeah, they don't. <laughs> I'll get you a pair that does then. How about that? So, so, so here's the thing. The one that got away is about a piece of gear um, whether it's an instrument or perhaps in your field, it's uh, some sort of something that helped you with your craft that was either lost, stolen, or you had to sell at one point that you wish you had back. Maybe it's a compressor. Maybe it's a microphone. Maybe it is a guitar. But what is the one that got away for you, 
Nightbot. Usually I use that term, the one that got away to women that sort of like I made some kind of tragic mistake with, you know. Oh boy. So are we going to open that can of worms? Is, is that Pandora's box going down? Let's keep it gear centric today. <laughs> gear centric. I would say it's like I have very little attachment to electronic gear in any way, shape, or form, right? Uh, I could easily say that I made a big mistake uh, selling any number of guitars, right? That you, at one point, you look back and you say like, I should have never sold that guitar. Wow. Not that one. That's a nice, <laughs> wait, is that, that an explorer bass? I never owned it for one, okay. right? But, but there were, there were several guitars that, that I could say like that, you know, um, Larry Friedman, who had We Buy Guitars, right? He says there's two reasons why a musician sells a guitar. And I go, and what are they, Larry? And he would go, number one, they needed the money, right? And I go, and what's number two? They needed the money, <laughs> right? So words to live by. Yeah, it's a thing. It's a P, it's, you know, I mean, people get, I find that people get, you know, wildly attached to, to items, right? And, uh, it's kind of like you start feeling like you should only own what you can carry with you at any one time. Okay. This is going from a guy who owns way too much stuff. <laughs> where now? Where do you keep it all? You're Mister New York. I mean, it's it costs you more to keep it in New York than it does actually to have. That's it. why it's outside in New York. Okay, good. Right? I have I have a back cave that has all this stuff that I bought that. Uh, I know if I sold sold it, I would never be able to replace it. You don't really have one that got away because you have all the good stuff still. I have a lot of good stuff now. And, and at one point you go like, yeah, I really shouldn't have sold that guitar. But on the other hand, I have these over here and they're really good, you know, or I have this amp or okay. that then, amp. Then do you have a special guitar that, that you're happy that you still have and it didn't? I have, yeah, I have, I have like an Earl Wine Automatic, which is a custom guitar built in Texas uh, that used to belong to uh, James Honeyman Scott from the Pretenders. Wow, that's that, a nice that, one. That's a special instrument. I also own a fire the, uh, a Firebird uh, that I bought for $60. It's a 63 Firebird. And when I was working sixty dollars, where'd you buy that at? Are you going to the same pawn shops? Aces? What's going no, on? Oh no, I go. To, I listen. I know where to go. I bought it from a uh, an accordion store on uh, uh, in Jersey City. I went in back then. Any music store you could buy guitar strings in, and it happened to be an accordion store. And I went in to buy some guitar strings. And I looked on the wall, and there's this Firebird. And I go, "That's awful, horrible looking instrument." He goes, "I hate it." And I go. What do you want for it? He goes, make me an offer. And I said, 60 bucks. And he handed it to me. He wow. says, get it out of my store. Right? And I was like, okay. <laughs> and and Williamson um, played that guitar on New Year's Eve uh, for a song. Who did? Uh, James Williamson from the Stooges. And that Stooges show I did with Blue Oyster Cult and Kiss and, yeah. um, you know, and Teenage Lust. Right? He played, and there's video of him playing it. That was a big yeah. show, man. That was a groundbreaking show. So that's cool. Mm -hmm. so that's that's kind. Of, you know, those instruments. Have, there's sort of an emotional attachment to that. To those, but, but not so much the PA equipment. Not so much because. Oh no! Because it gets better all the time. You know, I mean, it, it's it's. 
But see, people still talk about the old compressors, though, man. You got to have the tube compression and all that kind of stuff. Listen, a very famous engineer said to me once, he says, the, the least amount of crap in between the music and the audience is the best, is the best thing. It's the way I feel about my guitar signal, you know. He goes like, don't fuck with it. You know, just make, you know, you j your job is to get that music that that musician is playing to those people. Who are you to make, you know, uh, critical decisions, you know? So don't, you know, don't start over compressing and crushing the life out of it, you know? And, and it's like, it, it really changed my idea of how mixes should be. And then I was talking to Dave Natal. Do you know Dave Natal? He mixes the Rolling Stones, right? Okay. okay. He doesn't use any compression anywhere he goes i go you really no compression he goes this is my mic compressor i ride his fader and this guy's doing stadiums right wow yeah. and that, well, but at this point mix probably got his mic controlled down to the two to like such a I don't know about that you know yeah. but I don't I guess, know. I guess not, too. Yeah, I, all right, I will well, say goes my singers, legendary singers and mic control. I'm, it's, it's, it's not always go hand in hand. Listen, let me tell you, Paul Rogers, the best best mic control of any singer I've ever worked with. Okay. Well, Paul Rogers, right. But, you know, I mean, gear is gear. It's a hammer. You know, you can have a hammer made out of plutonium. You can have a hammer that you buy in, in, uh, in Home Depot. Both will do the job of driving a nail. Okay. Right? I like that as life advice. I'm oh, telling you, you know, it's sort of like, it's like, metaphorically you can drive a Ferrari or you can drive a smart car. They will both get you from point A to point B. And one of them will need a mechanic named Luigi to keep it on. Hey, Bob, are you plutonium or are you a Home Depot? <laughs> Are you? Yeah, I try and that'd be are you a Ferrari or like, are you a no, smart car? No, here's what it is. I think I'm a smart car, but I like to charge plutonium money. There you go. Right, because uh, it, it's like, you know, it's the truth. You know, um, I really think that that, that like just plenty. It used to be there weren't that many engineers, right? And just in this this uh, the past four weeks, you know, I've been able to listen to both Brad Maddox and um, uh, mix like a bunch of shows, right? And he's I I sat through the show that he did. Uh, sat through is an important thing, right? That I stayed for an entire show that that he mixed of uh, R forty the Rush Farewell Tour, which was if you ask me what was the mo some of the most amazing shows I've ever heard, I would put that up in the top ten. Really? Yeah, it was really really wonderful show. You know, totally mixed great, you know, and and like just, you know, there's a lot of good engineers out there. I was going to say, who is there? I mean, I kind of look at you as as legendary status. I look at you as like the way I look at my cheap trick in that sense of, of bands, the, of the bands I love. Who is this Eddie Van Halen amongst sound men? Who is who is oh, that? Rand, who is that? Randy Rhodes, that Eddie Van Halen, that Brian May of sound technique. Right then, you've 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 spoken of like four or five people, right? You could, you know, I mean, like, like I heard Brad Maddox do a, a spectacular show, right? I heard Mark Doddle mix Steely Dan and have a spectacular show. Uh, Robert Scovel on the last uh, Tom Petty tour, 
This is the greatest compliment I could give, right? After the first song, right, I completely, all my, uh, you know, critical bits shut off and just said, this is great. Don't overthink it. Just sit and enjoy the music, right? And then came this drum fill that was breathtaking. And this is at the Prudential Center in Newark, New Jersey, right? And when you can just, because it's hard, when you mix bands, it's hard to shut it off sometimes, right? You're sitting there going, the hi-hat's too loud. The kick drum, and it kind of ruins, you know, music for you you know because it's hard to to turn off that critical thing but there are shows man that all those 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 things in your head just shut off and go like just sit back and enjoy it and be a punter for a change you know be a 16 year old listening to a a great rock show and get that into it in the first place yeah you know and uh Yeah, are you in demand? Hold on. Is that your? Is that no, your? No, about that's the Royal Albert Hall, and that's my my uh, staff, right? For um, from Capital Audio, right. they're all like twenty years younger than me, and they are really good at what they do. You know, it's just like Ron, who is the system engineer on Alice Cooper, is also really good at what he does. There you he go. Goes, Throwing he out some love to the Alice Cooper Ace Frehley tour. I gotta say that. I, I, you know what? Let's, since we're there, I just say that, like, look, after a two year layoff, right, um, to come out and to be in a situation where everybody is so nice, so talented, and so helpful, right, is really kind of refreshing. You know what I mean? So I'm sure everybody's happy to be here. You know, but but it's like, um, you know, it's like talented people. You know, so, you know, another thing I was told when I was really young was just like work with talented people, right? And you have, there's like everybody who works in this organization is very talented at what they do. And they carry their weight and they work really hard. Your production assistant, Amber, you know, Judy, you know, all, they, they work really hard. They're also in the show. So you got to yeah, shout out. That's the thing with the too. Alice Cooper band. Yeah. You, you not only do what you're hired to do, you're going to wear a couple other hats as well. And you're going to yeah. most probably be in the show. But yeah, man, I love the fact that you're spreading the love around uh, with the Alice Cooper camp and the Ace Fraley camp. Um is there wow. is there one is there a gig like I mean obviously we've done a lot of shows together so far is there a venue where sound guys you know sound engineers go all right this one's gonna be a tough one yeah the uh, one we were in last night or the night before <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah. But is there like a, is there like one of those like, like a, those Hollywood Bowl type of rooms where you go oh god this one this one's the problem a- with Hollywood Bowl is there's a guy breathing down your neck going 98 dB or you go to jail right I was like I ain't going to jail for that I'll turn the fucking PAO off I did that in Sweden where where the government New York Dolls right New York Dolls are playing uh what's that big Swedish fest you're playing Sweden Rock Sweden Rocks right I had. Government officials with like graphs and meters and printouts and everything, right? Saying I had to keep it at 95 dB, which is a struggle, right? Uh, with, you know, with the New York Dolls, right? And at one point, I turned off the PA. He goes, you know, the, uh, we could take you to jail. And I went, oh, jail? I turned the PA off. The band's still playing, right? And, and it was, and, and like, uh, I go, that's just the band. And they go, are you saying we should arrest the band? I go, yeah, watch this, right? The show ended. Yeah, I mean, the song ended and the audience went nuts. 
and it went off the chart. And I said, arrest all your countrymen because they're louder than the band and the PA. What's the loudest you've ever mixed? A, what's the loudest you've ever mixed a, a show, Night Bomb? Oh, I mixed some really loud show. <laughs> that is kind of. <laughs> come on, what do you think? Off the top of my head, Kiss at um, Kiss in London. Kiss in London, you mixed. That's very funny. Yeah. And, and when you think about it, like, what is a jet? And because I, I, yeah. I don't really know the relative things. Okay. Of what let me let me tell. Let me, we'll put it to you this way, right? So uh, Paul Stanley comes to me uh, before a sound check. He goes like, I want you to make this show the loudest show ever that was in this arena, right? And I'm like, I can do that, right? I can do that, right? So I go out, I do this show. It's, it's, it was loud, man. It was scary loud. It was like 1988. And, uh, you know, it's like, uh, I was like, the next day, Stanley pulls me aside. He goes, you know, I told you to make this show really loud, and you did that. And I'm like, okay. And he goes, but it's really hard for me to perform looking at a front row that looks like they're in, like on a rocket sled. With like this, you know, their hair is blown back and all this. So you got to turn it back, you know. But that was just in the 70s. That was the thing. Uh, especially, I mean, I've done some loud shows. I'm I'm not into it as much, you know. The PAs are better, right? You can, you know, and it's all getting what you need out of the PA. Well, you know, your it's your motivation changes. You want coverage. You want people to enjoy music. You know, you don't want to bludgeon them to death. You know, and in some cases, when you get into an older audience, right, you can tire them out really fast by hammering them with low end. Right. They get t- physically tired and you can watch it. You know, you can watch it happen because like a band comes out like, yay, five songs in, they're like, yay. Uh, right? Eight songs in, somebody's passed out. You know? <laughs> well, right. yeah, you know, 18 ounce beer and a hot dog and like five songs with a bunch of low that's end. That is that's, the steely, that's the steely band thing because they sit for an hour and they drink. Right, Steely Dan audience because Becker says he goes, "What do you think of the audience?" I go, "They're a bunch of drunks," and he goes, "Really? What do you mean?" I go, "I come into a venue and they go, we're happy you're back.'" I go, "Why? Because we sold out the uh, the place?" They go, "No, it was the biggest bar of the season." Exactly. Right. About the most amount of <laughs> because they're making bank on, on selling alcohol, right? And it was because I say, you watch, right? Goes, they sit there and they, they drink all throughout the show. And then when you play my old school, they get up and they want to dance, right? And what they do is at first they struggle to get up and then they wobble around, you know? And, um, well, I forgot that we're doing a late night show in Europe for our European audience okay. on the live stream. So I appreciate you guys the entire time hanging out in the chat with all these amazing comments that have been coming up the whole time that we've had Night Bob as our guest. Yeah, I'm sorry, I can't, you know, I'm, I really haven't been paying attention to those uh, comments. Well, know. no, there's a lot of them been coming up right there. Um, I, the thing is, we do have some special guests that have been following us on the uh, Ace and Alice tour. And we like question? to do well. We would like to put up a little bit of the fan of the week section right now okay. because uh, we we do have some fans that came out, and we were trying to uh, figure out. Who can we pick out that has been following the tour, has been coming to enough shows? Because I know that Officer Burkholder has been out on the whole tour. Um, but we do have a special fan of the week. Vic, you want to run it real quick? 
And it's not just fan of the week, it's fans of the week. You might have been seeing them in the venues uh, night, Bob. This is Heather Ruin and Jen Sumo. They've been following the tour. They've been gone to a bunch of shows on this tour. So you are our fans of the week. Oh, wow, we even have the uh, graphics for it. And thank you very much for being part of that In the Trenches family and being part of it. Again, if this is your first time listening to us on the podcast and you're listening to us on audio, uh, thank you very much. But uh, make your way on over to Ryan Roxy Official and hit the subscribe button that is right there in the corner if you can. And uh, subscribe for more shows like like this uh, our guest this week has been night bob uh legendary sound technician and currently uh front of house technician for ace freely and on the alice cooper ace freely tour um when you're not spending time you know blowing you know people's ears off but you don't do that anymore because like you said you're making people enjoy music when you're when you're not spending time giving that nice sonic experience, you're saving cats. Right? Oh, and I, okay. I just wanted to quickly go before, before we have to uh, cl- close the show down. I want okay. people to tell to, to us about your one, cat love. Uh, I real at one point I realized the power of the internet, right. To, um, to help uh, animal rescue. Right. It's not really saving cats. It's like, uh, like I think that, that I have cats. I've always had cats. I've had dogs. I've had all, you know, uh, but animal rescue became a thing, right? And I found that I was able to to raise money uh, for animal rescues on Facebook, right? And the Facebook app changed uh, and it was hard to, to do that. It's like an evil Facebook, you know, no saving cats and dogs. Okay, like, okay, okay. So I started doing um, these t-shirts, right? And we'd sell these uh these uh, Night Bob t-shirts that said Deliver- delivering the decibels, right? And we take the money we made from that and we give them to uh, to animal rescue organizations who could always use uh, an extra buck here and there. That's cool. So, well, I say that it's like, you know, if you, you know, you want to, uh, I go for the price of, a, uh, of an expensive Starbucks coffee or a slice of pizza or something like that. It's, you know, forget about that coffee that time and send five bucks to a local animal rescue that, that helps, you know. Uh, do you have anyone in particular that you support? You know, I, I, I do, but I would say that, that it's like, be you know, think global, act local, you know, find some, some you know, some organization. And they work really hard to rehome animals, right? And they're all self-funded, you know what I mean? It's not like, you know, they're getting big chunks of money from, like, Purina or something like that. <laughs> they just want to help, you know, this kind of help uh, cats who need to be feral cats or cats that need to be rehomed because they go into shelters, and if they don't get adopted out really fast, they get euthanized, right? And it's, I think that's a terrible thing, you know? It's like, you know, they use this phrase, adopt, uh, don't shop. You know, don't go buy some cat from a pet store, rescue a cat, you know, or to- What do you do with your cats when you're, when you're on the road? You see, you're on the road so much time. Yeah, Mike, no, listen, do you have a, do you have a cat? Yeah, uh, no, actually, I don't have a cat. We, we, we I go away for, I go away for, like, when I come back, my cat's going to go, who are you? (laughs) I'm serious. We'll go like, who are you? You know, it's like, you know, like your partner's been opening the cans. You know, if we had opposable thumbs, we wouldn't need you at all. 
You know, well, so- Vic just put up a the Vic just put up a a shirt. Now, does that have something to do with the cat? Uh, yeah, I was using those shirts. Uh, uh, it's like everything in my life. It started as a joke, right? <laughs> and 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 uh, which is like that whole legendary thing is another thing that is a joke, right? Why is legendary? Because I made some. Um, because you were part of the legacy. You, you, you're the guy that makes these bands, that, if you enable them, people to hear these bands. So I think. Okay, I, well, to a point. So here's the thing. That a lot of times it was like I was an innocent bystander. I wrote a book about, about my arc through audio, right? And I called it Innocent Bystander because I tended to kind of just look into these things. You know, I did that band because nobody else wanted to. Right. When I went from Emerson, Lake and Palmer to the New York Dolls, right, my friends in Emerson, Lake and Palmer said, we cannot believe your career has plummeted from going from like a, a, a an arena act with history like Emerson, Lake and Palmer to this band. It, it's like they're horrible. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, well, who's talking about Emerson, Lake and Palmer now? Right. And who's, and who's still touring right now? Who's, who's the you know, who's the influ- who's influential now? You know, but uh, the funny thing to that statement was I said, yeah, but I don't have to lift anything anymore. Stack PA. And they went, what do you mean? I go, I fly with the band. I travel with the band. I fly, you know, we fly everywhere. And all I do is mix the PA. And then um, the engineer pulls me aside. The ELP engineer pulls me aside and says, once you leave the working class, never go back words to live by right and but the cat thing it, it was like it was almost embarrassing because it was like it came my friend Bryn Aarons who you may know right he came up with that when we were taking the Shoko logo and made it into a Night Bob logo and then he has a uh we decided to print some shirts up right and I, I was it's, to me I find it embarrassing I'd never wear one right and uh <laughs> And I was like, ah, I don't even feel good taking money for this. So I figured I would just do it, you know, in the, the ads that we did for him, he said, like, you know, uh, my part of the proceeds go to Animal Rescue, right? There and, you go. And now they're a limited edition thing. There's only about 200 made. We're going to do another one, I think, really soon. Well, there you go. And that's how that's how we'll close things out for people to find out more information about you. I'm not sure if Vic has any sort of, uh, you know, contacts for you but if someone was interested in one of those it'll be on on facebook you'll know i mean like probably facebook it from when we do is that the best way to do it yeah pretty much it's gonna be the last times uh yeah you can go to nightbob.com uh too uh, which is that's a place market that's basically so you can get in touch if you want to hire me to make your band sound loud but if you if you're interested in the shirts or anything like that or having more contact questions about sound it's or or just you know that kind of stuff getting one of these you know um you know it's like if you if you have a serious a good question if you don't ask me how to keep the hi-hat out of the snare drum uh, that I won't answer, <laughs> but you're yes. good with it. You're good with equipment. And, and honestly, you know, I like that. Listen, listen, I've had a long career, right. And, and it's like, uh, I've had a really good time and I like to help people out. That's why at one point I started doing young bands and trying to help them to achieve what they're trying to achieve. Let me tell you, this is like trying to, uh, not them. They're, they're, they have a different uh, focus, but I mean, like, uh, uh, like, let me tell you, Vic. Right on, Vic. You know, 
<laughs> Should have the, I worked with these triplets who were signed to Warner Brothers, right? And before they went to make their record, they said, do you have any advice? And I said, don't let them make you into something you're not. Well, they were really obstinate and they wound up getting dropped, right? Ouch. Oh, okay. I can't work with them because he wanted to make them into something that they weren't. You know, they sounded like Nirvana with Gray Slick singing. Right now, all of them found the music business incredibly, the three triplets found the music business incredibly distasteful. And none of the three are involved in music right now. And here you are 50 years later, mixing sound as we go on to our, as both of us go on to our tour buses. I'll see you in uh, Topeka, Kansas. That's that's where we're headed, folks, to the Elvis. Enjoyable talking with you. To the yeah, Evil Knievel Museum. I maybe we'll meet at the Evil Knievel Museum that's uh, right next door to the venue tomorrow. But uh, yeah. folks, you have been hanging in the trenches with Night Bob. I have not once in the entire interview said Mick Bob, which is amazing for me because you probably wow. know Mick Bob as well, right? <laughs> oh, oh yeah, Mick Bob, right? Who works for Guns N' Roses? Exactly. So I the whole time I was like going, Who don't make this Bob. Have you ever seen video scrapbook? Okay, no, no. Tell me about it. It only exists on video cassette. It was something they put out during uh, Done With Mirrors to try and make some money. But there's some interesting, uh, the first time we had video cameras. Oh, so so there's like sort of like behind the scenes. Well, what it was is that Tom Hamilton says something to me and, uh, uh, and he didn't want to give out my last name. Right, because every secrecy was everything in the eighties, right? So he goes, That's Night Bob McBob. Right. <laughs> and, and it's like to this day, to this day, Sebastian Bach, that's me. That's that's the seventies photos if I ever saw one. So to uh, this day, Sebastian Bach does what? He calls me McBob. McBob. Yeah. And I was like uh, Sebastian calls a lot of things a lot of things. Uh, so yeah. there you go. Did you ever, uh, did you mix Skid Row? Did you do Skid Row before? No. No. Never. Mm -mm. Well, I'm I'm happy to say. The one that got away. The one that got away, perhaps. No. There you go. So, hey, McBot. (laughs) I did it. I did it. I said I wasn't going to do it. I did No drugs. Nothing but water was done done during this show. Uh Nothing. That's because it's. That's because it's not late for us, but all those in Europe. I'm just waking up. We should do this again in an hour after I have a cup of coffee. Uh, Maybe I'll I'll tell you the real deal about Steven Tyler. Oh, boy. Maybe we'll have to have you on for part two again. But uh, Night Bob, I appreciate you taking the time. Thank you very much. Everybody go check out Night Bob's Facebook if you'd like to. And uh, support a local cat. Think globally. Animal rescue. We not to be a cat. Any kind of animal rescue. You know, it's important. You know, globally, act locally. I love it. Five bucks. Five bucks helps. Every oh. buck helps. And there you go. And next there week, we our guest is a, a mystery guest. We will be announcing that in just a couple of days. But uh, you've been watching In the Trenches with Night Bob. I am your host, Ryan Roxy. Thank you very much, Vic. Thank you, Federica. Uh, everybody out there, thanks for hanging in the chat. Until next time, enjoy the ride. See you guys. In the Trenches with Ryan Roxy. Hello. Moby, give him his guitars back.